This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Designed specifically for venture-backed startups, Brex is the perfect corporate card for fast-growing companies. Head to brex.com and sign up with the promo TFR to get waived card fees for life. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back for another episode of The Full Ratchet. Today's episode is a Full Ratchet first, where we are featuring two guests from Cleveland, Ohio. Mike Belsito had a great suggestion to discuss raising capital outside of the Valley and to bring on Morris Wheeler of Drummond Road Capital to give his take on investing capital outside the Valley. Mike is an entrepreneur that recently wrote a book on the subject called Startup Seed Funding for the Rest of Us, How to Raise a Million Dollars for Your Startup Even Outside of Silicon Valley. On today's episode, we address questions including, what are the key challenges to raising outside the Valley? Does crowdfunding for equity lower the barriers to raising for smaller market startups? What advice would you have for founders regarding crowdfunding? What are the common missteps that you see startups make when attempting to raise capital? Regardless of location, what are the three roles that make for an ideal team at the seed stage? And what are some of the things that you've learned through the fundraising and investing process that was different than your initial assumptions or mindset? We cover those questions and more in today's episode. And a quick note, I do mention in the episode an interview with Gil Penchina. Clearly, that has not yet been released, but it will be here in the coming weeks. So look out for that. And before launching in, I want to say a huge thanks to Michael Drosh from Boston, Massachusetts. When I mentioned my project to aggregate the top venture blog articles of the week, many of you emailed me and expressed an interest in reading it. And Michael actually wrote to me and asked if he could participate in the project. I couldn't have been happier for the help, and even more so to work on it with a Full Ratchet listener. So a few months have passed since then, and I can't say enough about Michael's great thought process and work ethic. And I hope you all find some value in the launch of this newsletter magazine, Venture Weekly, here in the near future. All right. With that, let's kick things off. Here's the episode on raising and investing capital outside of the Valley. Today, we welcome Morris Wheeler and Mike Belsito. Morris is a mentor at Techstars Boulder and has a fund, Drummond Road Capital, that was named one of the most active seed VCs of 2013 by CB Insights. And Mike is an entrepreneur and author of the upcoming book, Startup Seed Funding for the Rest of Us, all about raising capital outside of the Valley. Morris and Mike, welcome to the program. Thanks very much. Thanks for having us, Nick. Yeah, thank you very much. Let's kick things off with a brief intro. Morris, maybe you can start. Can you give us a sense for how you got involved in startup investing? Well, I'm a, uh, a VC from way back during the, the, the first internet phase. I ran a, a fund back in 93, 94, 95 in that time frame. And after starting and running and exiting my own internet company, and then somehow growing and exiting a small public industrial company that I was a a partial owner and CEO of, I decided it was time to go back into the venture game. 
And uh, that's what I've been doing since 2008. 2008. So at that point, did you raise drum capital or did you get your start more as an angel investor? I did a little bit of both. And the fund came into play in 2010. And now for Mike, what was it about raising capital in a smaller market for your previous startup that compelled you to write a book about it? It's interesting. When I look back, the startup that I had, eFuneral, we raised close to a million dollars over the course of three years. And it wasn't one of those things where it was just a you know two-week process, start the process, raise a million dollars, close it. I mean, it was a million dollars over a three-year period. But as soon as we started going through the process of fundraising here in Cleveland, I was getting approached all the time from other founders that were just like me that didn't really know too much about the process and the journey of raising capital. So before we really got going, during, and then certainly afterwards, certainly now, I just got approached all the time by founders that wanted to meet for coffee. And their question would just be, how did you do it? And at first, I didn't really have a great answer for them. But I started to really reflect on, well, what did we do that kind of put us in a position to raise the capital that we raised, especially in a place like Cleveland, Ohio. And ultimately, I thought, a single resource that somebody could turn to, especially for those people that aren't coming from San Francisco or Silicon Valley or New York City, I thought a resource like that could be really helpful. So that was really the genesis for the book. Was the uh, the million dollar raise, was that one raise or did you do a seed and then a series A? How did that sort of roll in? I guess it could all be considered a seed round for us, but really it was sort of peppered in over time. Certainly there was an initial amount that we raised was several hundred thousand dollars um, in the very beginning to get going. But over time, there were sources of capital here in Northeast Ohio that they are available to technology entrepreneurs. But to access those sources of capital, you have to hit certain milestones. There's a certain process to go through. So that's how we were able to raise uh, some of the other funds that we raised, which ended up totaling close to a million dollars. But it was really Again, I say it was a three-year process of raising capital because there really wasn't a time where I wasn't thinking at least partially about raising capital. Nick, I'm going to jump in here for a second because my experience has been, and I think this is especially true for companies outside of the Silicon Valley area, although it applies to a certain extent to them as well. Seed is no longer a round Seed is a 12 to 18 month process in which there are several tranches of fundraising that take place that when looked at all together from the point of view of a later Series A raise were the seed. And it's not a single round. It's not a single point in time. And I find that that is typical for almost every company, the length of time that that seed process takes is is a little bit different depending upon what region you're in. Seed has really become a process, not a round. Right. You get these rolling closes and startups are going to take money as they can get it, right? So they might provide more incentive to get your money in early as a professional investor, but certainly different tranches can be set up over that, that fundraise period. Exactly right. You know, you may raise at one valuation or one cap before an accelerator, another after an accelerator, and a third when you're halfway to what you think your Series A milestones are. Yep. Seen plenty of that. So, Mike, we're doing a price round or convertibles or some sort of mix? 
we actually raised uh, on a convertible note. So that was, you know, in the very beginning, uh, this was back for us in 2011. It was the summer of 2011 that we started that business. And at the time, a convertible note seemed to be an easy instrument. And maybe, you know, that was part of the reason why we went that direction. Over the course of the past several years, though, it's certainly become just as easy to raise in a price round as well. So I, I think some of the reasons why we raise in a convertible note, it may not necessarily even be applicable today. Okay, good deal. Valuable insights. We've seen some of the same things here in Chicago. So most of the questions here will be for both of you, and feel free to answer them as you like. But first off, can you highlight some of the key challenges that make it difficult for startups to raise outside of the Valley? Sure. One that immediately comes to mind for me is access to capital. But there's a caveat to that. So what I mean by that is in a, in a market like Cleveland, Ohio, there aren't as many investors, let's say. So the access to the capital that exists in a market, you might have people that are willing to meet with you, but there just isn't as much funding in this particular market. And so that is a challenge. On the other hand, sometimes it is a self-fulfilling prophecy in that founders will use that as an excuse. The reality is we aren't bound by our geographical boundaries here, right? So a founder in Cleveland, Ohio, can and should very much build relationships outside of the market that they live within. So for us, that was actually the case. We were able to build relationships with people outside of Cleveland. Uh, and in fact, some of the investment that we raised was as far as you know Albuquerque, New Mexico. But we had to make a conscious effort of doing that. So I think that's something that for founders, while it is a challenge, it's not something that has to bind you forever, especially if you think outside of your own geography. I think that's an important distinction. I think too many companies get caught up in this idea that they need to only raise locally. And today that's just not the case. I think the most important thing is understanding that the road to capital is not generally paved with cold calls. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's paved with introductions and you got to work a network and you got to build a network in order to get to the capital. Yeah. And use your investors too, right? If you've got a mentor in the area that believes in you, then absolutely tap into them and their networks. Absolutely key. Yeah. I was just going to add, I mean, you'd be surprised too, just the technology that exists for us. People can absolutely build those relationships in ways that you might not traditionally think of as relationship building. I can tell you several investors that I was able to build relationships with, some that even turned into interview subjects for the book, they started on Twitter. I'd reply to a question that they'd posed on Twitter, and soon enough, I'd realize that they were the ones that are replying to questions that I'm posting on Twitter, and the relationship doesn't end there. You know, Then, all of a sudden, those turned into email conversations, phone calls. In some cases, we were being considered for investment by some of those individuals, but I think people can realize that relationship building doesn't have to be face-to-face -face initially. You can look to some of these creative tools that everybody has access to, to to get your foot in the door. Yeah, I consider us very fortunate to be in an industry where investors embrace technology and they use it and will even interact with you across a variety of platforms. So that's certainly been helpful to me in connecting with other investors and for engaging with folks on the show. Yeah, I, I would say 60 to 70% of the first meetings that I take are video meetings using Google Hangout or Skype. 60%? Yep. 
Because, I mean, I'm doing only about 20% of my investments are in the Cleveland area. And the first meeting I do with most companies, if they're from the Bay Area or they're from Colorado or from Los Angeles or New York, the first meeting I'm going to have is going to be a Skype or video meeting. Do you think you lose anything through that or with the nature of video conferencing, how far it's come? Are you getting a pretty good sense for people on that first meet? I can get a pretty good sense in a, in a half hour meeting. Obviously, it's not quite the same as being in person, but adding that video aspect and being able to interact and see body language and be able to have a conversation with somebody, it's a good screen. Again, that's a first meeting. I generally have a couple of meetings before I make an investment, but I would say it's a very good way to do a, a first screen. I don't think there's any way I could do the type of investing I do without video conferencing. So I was going to touch on this later, but with the nature of investing becoming less localized, maybe we can jump into it now. So as far as crowdfunding goes, do you guys think that this has lowered the barrier to raising for smaller market startups? And what advice would you have for founders with regards to crowdfunding platforms? A couple of things that I've experienced here in Cleveland and, and, you know, crowdfunding can mean a couple of things. Crowdfunding can mean Kickstarter for, say, for a physical product. But I think we've also seen uh, platforms like AngelList become really popular in terms of equity fundraising. Yep. What I've experienced is platforms like AngelList are, first of all, amazing. And everybody should be using AngelList as a way to find out who the investors are in specific verticals, in specific markets. We actually didn't raise funds on AngelList per se. There was one investor that did invest in eFuneral and he reached out through AngelList, but really he had heard about us before. But where it becomes incredibly useful in a place like Cleveland is if I start to expand my networks outside of the geography that I'm familiar with and I start looking at places like Columbus, in Chicago, and even New York, I might not have that network. And in fact, three years ago, I didn't have any sort of network in those markets where I knew the investors that were very active. With AngelList, I'm able to not only see who the investors are, but I could see who they've actually invested in. And that would then be, I have reached out to the entrepreneurs that have worked with those investors to try to get a good sense of who they were, how they were to work with, And ultimately, you know, some of those relationships would turn into introductions to those investors. So I think if you could work the platform like that, it could be really useful. I haven't from at least the experiences uh, with, you know, friends of mine in places like Cleveland and Columbus. I haven't seen the overwhelming majority of people that have raised rounds, raise them the majority on a platform like AngelList. But in all cases, they're using AngelList for information collecting for sure. I think it it becomes much more common to actually raise the round through a platform like AngelList when you're in a bigger market like New York or Silicon Valley. Morris, I'd be interested in your perspective on that too, though. Well, I'm, I'm going to start by being overly technical <laughs> because I think the average person equates crowdfunding with a general solicitation of non-accredited investors. What does that mean? That means... Anybody can invest and there's no structure under SEC rules for how they're asked to invest. Like a Kickstarter is non-accredited crowdfunding. That's just not the way AngelList works. AngelList is all accredited investors. 
there is rarely to never a general solicitation, meaning I just go out and randomly ask people that I don't know for money. AngelList is a network where people know each other, you get introductions, and the mode of investment is not through a general solicitation under the Jobs Act or anything else. So in my mind, AngelList is nothing more than a communication platform where accredited investors can recommend investments to other accredited investors without having to pick up the phone and say, hey, take a look at this. That's number one. And in that sense, I get a lot of recommendations through AngelList, people who find me through AngelList, through other people I know on AngelList or who I have connections with on AngelList. I do not consider that crowdfunding in any way. I also participate in syndicates on AngelList. Just so you guys are aware, we just had Gil Pencina on the program, the largest syndicate leader on AngelList. So hopefully that provides some perspective. Good. As you know, a syndicate is much more like an ad hoc venture fund for a single deal than it is like crowdfunding. And in my view, the syndicates that I participate in, whether I'm a leader or a follower in that syndicate, those aren't crowdfunding either. Now, that being said, one of the big syndicates invested in a company that I was already invested in. And it was great for that company to be able to get an investment from that syndicate. But crowdfunding to me is a whole nother cup of tea. It suggests investments where you have a lot of people who you don't know, you have no idea who they are or, or what else they've invested in or what kind of value that they have ending up on your cap chart. In a syndicate, that's not what happens. You have an investor who leads the syndicate. That's the person that you speak to. That's the person that's on your cap chart. And I see that as being a very different thing. One of the pieces of advice I give every company is don't take money from somebody you don't know. Don't take a check unless it has some other form of value add that comes with it. Now, that's not advice that every company I work with abides by. But in my mind, I don't like the idea of any of my companies taking money from people that they have no idea who those people are any more than I would invest in a company where I didn't know the company or have some reason to believe that it was going to be a winner. Sure. I can relate with that. You know, a lot of the folks that I work with here in Chicago are strategic investors and they will not just be completely passive They want to be active investors. They want to contribute and they want to help in any way that they can, whether that's on the internal development side or just creating connections. Correct. And and the most important thing that an investor should be able to do is to help you get to the next round. Yep. Absolutely. So speaking of which, what are some of the common missteps that you see startups make when they're attempting to raise capital? Being too eager to take a check (laughs) because that's when mistakes are made. That's when you take on partners that aren't going to be good partners and may create problems for you down the road. Frankly, that's one of the most common mistakes I see being made. Another mistake that I see being made is not understanding the expectations that your investors are going to have around communication, what their rights really are even due diligence. There are founders out there who think they can raise money from investors 
and tell them you're a small investor, so you get no information rights. And when they ask for a cap chart and due diligence, they think they can tell them, no, you can't see my cap chart, even though you're wanting to invest in my company. I see that more and more. Really? Really. I've never run into that, but I can see why it would be (laughs) off-putting. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, I'm not generally in the really early rounds. I'm not going to be investing a lot of money. I'm a, I'm a investor that puts twenty dollars or $50,000 into the early rounds. I like to be able to get my investment up to two fifty dollars or more, but not in the first round. And I've actually had a growing number of founders who expect an investment to be made without significant due diligence. Sure. So you're, you're marking some of that capital to hopefully follow on on the, uh, the startups that are growing and hitting the milestones that you would like. I'd go farther to say I'm expecting to invest that money as long as they aren't veering wildly off the path. And and sometimes I even invest when they are because it's necessary. I follow on. That's what I do. I invest with the intention of continuing to invest through the Series A. Just directionally, what is the amount that you would follow on with in terms of a 2X or a 3X? Like if you're making a $50,000 investment, how much do you plan or, or think about following on? My hope is that I will have a $250,000 or better position by the time the Series A closes. Wow. So about 5X of the initial position then. And yes, but remember, most of the time when I do my initial investment, it's first money in. It's pre-accelerator money. It's, it's, oftentimes, it's pre-MVP money. Right. This is more, you're betting on the team and I'm betting on the team. I like the idea and I'm backing the team to help get that MVP out. And in a lot of ways, it's almost friends and family money as much as it is investment money. Well, I hope that's a testament to getting embedded and getting involved in your startup community wherever you're at, because the more involved you are, the more opportunity you have to interact with these uh, you know, young, brilliant folks and, and may have the opportunity to, uh, to help them out from a very early stage. Yes, absolutely. And Nick, that's how Morris and I came to know each other, right? We're just both very actively involved in Cleveland's startup community. Morris didn't invest in the previous company I had. I didn't know Morris at the time when we were really raising, but we got to know each other. And I think that that's something, especially for somebody that is outside of Silicon Valley, they're in a more nascent startup community. That's something that they can do right now to put themselves in a better position whenever they do start a company. You don't have to have a startup company of your own, by the way, to put yourself squarely in the center of your own community, right? There's certain things that you could do to help build that up. And hopefully you're doing that not just for the sake of being able to meet investors down the road. You're doing it for the sake of wanting to build up your own community. But we talk a little bit about that in the book. There's a company, Ambition, and they were a part of the Y Combinator class um, just a couple years ago. And they were out of Chattanooga, Tennessee. And Brian, one of the co-founders that I had a chance to talk to, and he talked about how being in Chattanooga, that's not exactly New York City. That's not even Austin or Boulder or any of the other sort of secondary big startup communities. But in Chattanooga, they're sort of one of the only shows in town. And he kind of takes pride in the fact that if you're in Chattanooga and you know technology companies, you're going to know about ambition. And he and his team, they put themselves out there to help mentor other startups. 
And they feel like for them, one of the reasons why they decided to, after Y Combinator, move back to Chattanooga, they feel like there's value in being sort of the big fish in the little pond, so to speak, rather than locate their business in a place like Silicon Valley, as great as it is and as magical as that, that place is for them, that was, that was one of the reasons why they went back east. So those are some things to do. Mike, what about from your perspective, what are some of the common missteps that you see startups make when they're attempting to raise capital? Not being willing to go outside of your own region, uh, keeping the blinders on only to the investors that are in your region. I think that's a big mistake. But I think another mistake is assuming that you don't have the network already. I hear from a lot of founders, well, I don't really have the connection. So I, I don't even know how to get in touch with these people. When I talk to Ian Sigalow of Graycroft, he fully admits most of the investments they make, it comes from an introduction. It's an introduction, right? It's, it's not from somebody that he already knew for a very long time. It's from somebody, maybe one of his startup companies, maybe uh, somebody else that's closely connected to him. It's from a connection like that. And Ian's point was, look, I'm probably two degrees away from most startup founders in the grand scheme of things. Like, especially in New York, I'm probably two degrees. And if somebody wants to meet me, they have to put the effort in to actually find me. But I'm not that hard to find. And I think that that could be a mistake is if people don't utilize their own networks, if they don't go on to AngelList and, and specifically look at those uh, investors that they want to meet and then go back to LinkedIn and see how you're connected with that person. Like there's work that everybody can do to all of a sudden make this giant world feel a lot smaller. So I see that often. And then the last thing I wanted to mention, and then this isn't necessarily specific to in or outside of Silicon Valley, but just not understanding if or when they actually need to raise capital. A lot of people are focused on raising capital in the very beginning stages. And sometimes that's not what you need. Sometimes being able to put the effort into getting a prototype built, that's well worth it as opposed to spending your time in the very beginning trying to find investment for an idea. Not many people invest in ideas. They invest in something more tangible. And even getting something to prototype phase is a lot farther along than just talking about the idea itself. So those are a few things that really come to mind. I'm going to jump in here for a second because one of my favorite things to say and to tell founders, and I don't mean it to be mean, but ideas are worthless. (laughs) (laughs) Execution is the only thing that has value. And kind of on the mistakes made, don't be afraid to do the work. The best deals that I get don't come through other investors. They come to me through the management teams of my portfolio companies. When another investor brings me a deal, if they haven't invested in it, my first question is why? And why are they sending the deal to me if they didn't invest in it? Yep. And if the deal comes to me from someone who did invest in it, then my question is, if it's so good, why aren't they doing the whole thing themselves? Why are they sharing it with me? <laughs> I, I tend to be uh, a little bit cynical. <laughs> yeah. But if it's coming to me through the founders who I trust and who I've been working with and who I like, and they say, hey, I really like this person. They're doing interesting things. Talk to them. That almost means more to me than a deal that comes to me through my investor network. Interesting. Yeah. Often the, uh, the entrepreneurs that are leading these great companies are much more dialed in to their, their counterparts than uh, investors can ever be. Yes. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Your startup is going to change the world, and the right corporate card will get you there even faster. The Brex Corporate Card for Startups offers 10 to 20 times higher limits than traditional corporate cards, 
automated expense tools, and huge rewards like four times points back on travel, three times back on restaurants, and two times back on recurring SaaS spend. And all with no personal guarantee. Sign up at Brex.com and get waived card fees for life with the code TFR. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Assure. For over three years, Newstack has been raising capital on a deal-by-deal basis, allowing individual investors to select each startup investment. Assure is the company behind the scenes that powers this process. When we have 10, 20, or 30 angels investing in a startup, we can't put all those folks directly on the startup's cap table. So those investors are rolled into a special purpose vehicle that occupies just one line item on the cap table. And Assure handles all ongoing fees, finances, and K-1s for us. We pay a one-time upfront fee and avoid all the required yearly admin filings and bills. If you run an angel group or you would like your LPs to invest in deal-by-deal sidecars, go to assure.co slash TFR for 20% off your first SPV. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. So, Morris, you've referred to this team makeup that you refer to as the Holy Trinity. Uh, What are the three roles that make for the ideal team and why are they important? Well, let me let me just start by saying I'm not sure I ever called it the Holy Trinity. Being a Jewish guy, being so independent on the Holy Trinity would be weird for me. (laughs) But the bottom line is every team I look for three roles that must be played. The first is the hacker. That is the full stack programmer who can be the technology lead for the deal. I don't expect every company to do all the development themselves at the beginning, but I do expect there to be one founding team member who has the ability to prototype things, to code things, and to manage the technical process as it moves along. So there's the hacker. The second role that has to be played is the hipster. The hipster is somebody who both understands design from a aesthetic standpoint and from a UX standpoint. How do I make a product that my customers want to use? This is the person that has a relationship with the customer and knows how to milk that relationship to figure out exactly how the product should be. So the hipster in many ways is the product person. The hacker is the the technical person. And then unfortunately, every team needs a suit. The suit is the person that's going to get out there and sell, that's going to help do the spreadsheet models, that's going to help figure out what the pricing structure can be. And these don't have to be necessarily three different people. Oftentimes, I I find a founder who can do two out of the three so that I've got two people that are playing three roles. It's rare that I find those three roles able to be played by one person. So in my mind... What I'm looking for is a a hacker, a hipster, and a suit within every team that I am uh, investing in. What are some of the other key learnings throughout the fundraising and the investing process that has evolved your approach and changed maybe your initial assumptions? I think one for me is just the whole, my experience, but also the experience of talking to so many founders who have done it before. There's a myth that 
in order to raise capital, you got to be in Silicon Valley or New York or one of these other big markets. And it's, it's just not true. I've had the chance to talk to so many people that have raised the capital that they needed to get their business off the ground in all sorts of different places. So when, when I meet people that they have that mindset, yeah, I got to go to Silicon Valley if I want to get any money. It, 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 I, I like to correct them right away because, you know, I'm sort of living proof that that's, that's not the case. You know, Silicon Valley, great place full of capital and talent. And it's definitely special, but it's just, you don't need to be there. And I think it's important to have that mindset from the get go. And in a way that can be empowering. If you're in a place like Louisville, Kentucky, or Chattanooga, Tennessee, or wherever it might be, you you can absolutely get the funding that you need right where you are. It might not come all the way from Chattanooga or Louisville or all those places, but but you can stay in those places and get the funding that you need. So I think it's important to take on that mindset. I would agree with that. But I, maybe the most important thing that I've learned in the past in Internet 2.0 since, you know, since I've been investing since 2008, 2009 is I used to believe and I think a lot of companies believe that the most important round of financing that they have to raise is their seed round. And in my mind, one of the things that I am testing for when I'm looking at the team and I'm looking at the idea and I'm looking at the prospects is. How easy do I think it's going to be for that next round to be put into place? When I started in 2008, 2009, in, in this particular model that I'm using now, I don't think I understood how important next round fundability was to the success of these companies. And now I really pay a lot of attention to that when I'm doing the first round. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it is a small percentage of those that get seed funded that ultimately close on an A. That's true. And there are, depending upon what region you're in, there are all kinds of red flags for where the next round of funding may be coming from. Do you think that you feel the Series A crunch in a smaller market more so than uh, folks in the Bay Area would, Morris? Well, I don't know how to answer that question because... Only about 20% of my investing is in Ohio. And of that, the only companies I've had so far that were at a Series A stage raised a Series A, I might say easily. So personally, I haven't felt it. And I'm going to go out on a limb here. And I know Mr. Belsito and a lot of people in Ohio will strangle me for this one. But (laughs) I don't think the Series A crunch exists. The Series A crunch suggests that there are a whole lot of companies out there that are deserving of Series A funding that aren't getting it. And I'm not sure that's the case. Yeah, I, I don't I don't disagree I don't disagree with Morris on that one actually. I mean I it's like look, if you could prove out what you need to prove out as a business, I do believe that funding will be available to you. And that there might be companies that are able to prove out certain things about their business, but not necessarily the entire business model they set out to prove and they might struggle to find series a capital, but they should struggle to find series a capital if they haven't done all the things that they needed to do to prove out that they actually have a business. So I don't disagree with you. I don't disagree with you at all on that one. I don't know if either of you guys have yet seen the recent Matamark report on startup funding, but that report makes fairly clear that series a funding is up in the past couple of years over the the prior years. So I'm just not sure how anybody can call that a Series A crunch. I did see that report that you're referring to. It's pretty good, pretty exhaustive. Yeah, yeah, it is. 
All right. So for both of you, if we could cover any topic in venture investing on the show, what do you think we should address and who would you like to hear speak about it? I'd love to hear more about transparency between founders and investors. I think one of the big learnings for me has just been how important that really is. And I don't know that it gets talked about enough. When somebody really takes investment from somebody, they are entering into a deep, deep relationship with them. And in, in some cases, depending on the, you know, the size of the investor, whether they're coming on board of directors or, or what have you, I mean, this is somebody that you're going to be working with so, so closely. Another mistake that some founders make is, is not really treating that relationship with the respect that it really deserves. And I think it's important to be fully transparent with your investors through the good times and the bad. I'd love to hear more of those sort of real conversations with investors, regardless of who it is, but about the times that they helped their startups when they were at that very down part, but how they've actually worked together with them as partners to to build things back up. Just personally as an entrepreneur, who's gone through the ups and the downs too? I'd love to hear more about those stories. Yeah, before Morris, you weigh in on that. Mike, you make a pretty good point because we just had Joanne Wilson on to talk about predatory investor practices and being transparent and helping founders. And the flood of emails I got right after was uh, shocking. People were quite refreshed to hear somebody talk so transparently. So I think you're right on target about bringing that more to the forefront. So... We're living in a world where there are a lot of people blogging about a lot of things. One of the things I don't think we hear enough about is those companies that bootstrapped their way to success, that used revenues and not venture funding to get where they were going to be. I think it's become too much of a venture funding has become too much of a goal rather than a tool. And I'd love to hear more from entrepreneurs, especially in the tech sector, who have opted not to go the venture route and how it worked out for them. Yeah, it's like some of these entrepreneurs become uh, career venture capital raisers. I mean, you think that that's all they're doing sometimes. And granted, they may need the money. But uh, gosh, sometimes I just wish that they were able to invest more of that time into the startup. Exactly right. And then there's the idea that getting a certain investor or a certain amount of money raised is something that deserves congratulations, when in fact, it's the execution that comes after that deserves accolades, not the raising of the money. The money is not a goal. That's the means to the goal. Great point. So we'll start with Mike here. But Mike, what is the best way for listeners to connect with you? Yeah, you, listeners can reach out to me. My email is mikebelsito at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from anybody if they had feedback. They could read some of my thoughts on startups at outsideofthevalley.com. And for those that are interested in learning more about the book, you could actually just go to seedfundingbook.com. And that's where you could find out more about startup seed funding for the rest of us. And Morris, how about you? What's the best way for folks to uh, reach out and connect with you? So I am a fairly avid Twitter user. I spend a lot of time collating and and curating things of interest to people in the startup community. And uh, I always respond to people on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Mo Wheeler, at Mo Wheeler. That's probably the best way to reach out to me. 
All right. Keep an eye out for Mike Belsito's new book. And if you're raising capital, doesn't sound like you could find a better guy that's going to support you more than Morris Wheeler. So both of you, thanks for joining me on the show today and hope to connect again soon. Great. Thanks, Nick. Yeah. Thank you very much, Nick. This has been great. Great discussion there with Mike and Morris. Let's recap some of the key takeaways. The first takeaway is on the multi-tranched rolling seed round that is becoming the norm. Morris gave an example of raising a round before an accelerator, after an accelerator, and a third when you're halfway through to your Series A milestones. This seems to have become the rule as opposed to the exception in many startup ecosystems. I wish I had a concrete theory as to why this is the case, but what we do know is that this is the environment that we're in. We've talked previously on episode 12 about the rolling close and the bridge to nowhere. We won't rehash that here, but we should acknowledge Morris's insights. His initial placement will often be 50K, yet he's trying to increase that position to 250K. Not through the A, B, and C rounds, but all 250K within the seed round. I have not heard an investor illustrate this strategy before, but it's a pretty interesting one. Even within a round or stage, which has a fuzzy definition to begin with, he's looking for that traction and progress to milestones and releases more of the 250K as things progress. In a way, it's kind of like Steve Blank's advice on early stage valuation. One must monitor a startup's progress before a huge capital infusion. A fixed point in time says little about progress. All right, the second key takeaway is the crowdfunding platform as an information tool. Most of us think of these crowdfunding platforms as places to list your startup and fundraise or syndicate your round. But it also is a great place for startup founders to do some recon on investors. They can get some information from afar on the types of sectors and business models that different investors invest in. And they can also reach out to other entrepreneurs that have been funded by a certain investor to get a better sense for that investor's style and approach. Mike mentioned that some of those entrepreneur relationships started through a platform actually turned into investor intros. The third and final takeaway is the hacker, the hipster, and the stoop. How could I not include this as a key takeaway? Uh, It's a great soundbite, and more than that, it's great philosophy. We've heard many investors talk about the necessity of a builder and a seller. I like Morris's take that you need the builder, i.e. the technical creator or coder, but also that you need a design person, someone that understands user interface and product design, can take customer requirements and translate those into a product offering. It's not a great surprise that the most valuable company in the world is Apple one that has intensely focused on industrial design and user interface as a differentiator. This is often the bridge between great technology being used by highly technical people and great technology being used by the masses. And finally, Morris's suit is a person that understands the business side of things. They can sell, they can set price, they can structure the business model appropriately. And the final note on this is that these three roles don't have to be played by three different people. And in fact, there is typically one individual wearing two hats, although it's very unusual to find one who wears all three. That will wrap up today's key takeaways. Let's move on to the tip of the week. And this week's tip is capital is a means, not an end. Morris had a great point during the interview today about how some entrepreneurs view raising capital as the goal and almost become more focused on it than the mission at hand. I'd imagine most of us have seen this at some point. The entrepreneur that is endlessly networking and on the capital raising circuit. 
It's even more exacerbated by key takeaway number one from today's episode. Now that raises have become a continuous process more so than an event. It is often amazing to me to consider the amount of time that a startup requires, especially with a lean team, and yet some folks are able to rub elbows with investors five days a week. Now, it's quite possible that these situations are dire and the cash reserve is completely gone, warranting them to prioritize raising cash over all else. But this won't always be the case, as you will often see these folks raising for 12 months on end. From one standpoint, you have to admire their persistence and hope that it translates to the business. On the other hand, if you are reviewing their deck in January versus their deck in June versus their deck in December and progress is stagnant, that may raise a red flag. While passion is paramount, let's all hope the passion for the pursuit of the mission exceeds the passion for the pursuit of capital. That will wrap things up for today. You've probably noticed the newsletter has been on hold for the past couple months I wanted to make sure that we were delivering some real value before we were sending that out. So keep an eye out for the relaunch of that newsletter, which will now include Venture Weekly, the top 10 articles of the week written by the venture experts. If you'd like that delivered to your inbox, you will receive it as long as you're signed up for the newsletter. As always, feel free to reach out. I have more daily interaction with investors than ever before, which is really helping me learn a great deal about the unique situations that we all find ourselves in. More than anything, I like meeting with fellow investors and startup founders. So you know where to reach me. It's nick at fullratchet.net. Until next week, remember to overprepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. See you next time. <laughs>